Fifteen years ago, I graduated seminary and moved to northeast Louisiana, where I served for seven years as the associate pastor of a liberal Christian congregation. My eventual move six years ago from liberal Christianity to Unitarian Universalism is not as large a leap as one might think. Indeed, from the early days of what became Unitarianism and Universalism in the 16th and 17th centuries all the way through the end of the 19th century, almost all of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were liberal Christians. The tide did not begin to shift decisively to something different toward what we think of as today as Unitarian Universalism until the early 20th century as part of the humanist controversy in our movement. Uh, And the Christian tradition remains the fourth of our UU uh, six sources. This summer, when UU General Assembly happened to be in Louisiana, I was honored to be invited to preach again at that liberal Christian church that had been my first congregation as a full-time professional minister. And in preparing that sermon, I realized that I was scheduled to preach there almost 14 years to the day of the first time I had preached from that pulpit. Moreover, I realized that I had been away from that congregation exactly the same number of years that I'd served there. I'd been there for seven years, and now I had been away for another seven. And I want to invite us to reflect some this morning on the insights that are sometimes only possible with the passage of time. In particular, I'd like to share with you some about how my mind has changed in regard to the religious tradition of my youth. In 2003, when I first began preaching as an ordained minister, I was 25 years old, I was fresh out of seminary, yesterday I turned 40. At least so far, that has not been particularly traumatic. Uh, I actually experienced greater cognitive dissonance turning 35. Suddenly I found myself no longer invited to check the young adult box of 18 to 34, Suddenly I found that marketers or sociologists or whoever designs those little boxes uh, was now categorizing me uh, without asking me in the 35 to 44 age bracket. Demographically, I found myself deemed not to be a young adult, but an adult adult, I guess, for better or worse. Now, there are some advantages to being younger. As Philip Roth famously said, old age is not a battle. Old age is a massacre. (laughs) But there's also wisdom that can sometimes come only with time and experience. And I suspect that some of you can relate to seeing the world now differently than you once did. Indeed, to quote another famous proverb, there are ways in which we see the world not merely or naively as it is. We see the world in some profound ways because of how we are in various different moments. We notice different things. One of the classic turning points in which a paradigm shift such as that can happen is midlife. The psychoanalyst Carl Jung called this the transition to the second half of life. He said, one cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be of little importance in the evening. And what in the morning was true in the evening may be a lie. And that doesn't mean it wasn't true in the morning. But in the evening, if it stays true, you may be in a midlife crisis, right? Uh, So... 
And as an example of how this has played out in my life, let me tell you a little bit about how my um, perspective has changed in regard to the scripture passage that you heard read earlier. So that happened to be, there's a Christian lectionary that assigns readings for given weeks, and the passage you heard this morning was the one that just happened to be assigned uh, that Sunday, this summer, when I returned to that congregation. And it was just very striking to me to think how, with a 14-year gap, how I think about that passage quite differently than I did. Uh, So I would have interpreted that passage as very differently in 2003 as a newly ordained Christian pastor than I would have today. And part of the reason for that shift has to do uh, with learning increasingly more about non-canonical texts like the Didache. Uh, But another major reason is that my worldview has changed, that we see the world not merely as it is, but how we are. As a younger man, solidly within what Jung called the first half of life, my inclination would have been to interpret Jesus' words quite literally as a challenge to everyone, including myself and the members of the congregation I was serving, to radically change our lives. For what it's worth, both then and now, I do think that was precisely Jesus' intention— Uh, Keep in mind that in my early days as a pastor, when I was most inclined to preach this radical message, I was in my mid-20s. I don't think it's a coincidence that when the historical Jesus preached those words or something like them, he was in his late 20s. He was a relatively young man, uh, speaking to even younger men, likely teenagers, when he gave these instructions. Cure the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for the journey. You'll be fine, right? Uh, Or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. This is not to say that one can only be radical in one's youth. That's clearly not the case um, historically. But there does tend to be a greater openness to giving up everything and following the latest radical leader in what Jung called the first half of life. For one thing, you tend not to have a mortgage. You tend not, you know, less responsibilities, right? More openness to 180 changes. And there are stories I could tell you from my early 20s of living for brief periods of time with a few different intentional communities, of organizing protests against the Iraq War, other such adventures. But looking back, I can also see now in ways that I couldn't really see then that there are ways in which the, so to speak, window for radical response was already closing by the time I accepted my first call as a first-time professional pastor. I think then I might have seen, like, that was the answer to the radical call, or that was, in in, in ways I can see now, that itself was a major compromise. Um, uh, After all, I didn't move to Louisiana to spend seven years following Jesus for free. I negotiated a contract. Uh, They paid me a salary with benefits. After being there two years, I had a mortgage. I bought a house. But that's not how Jesus' standard operating procedure imagined it. Rather, he said, whenever you enter a town or village, find out who in it is worthy, stay with them. As you enter the house, greet it. The house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, and if it is not worthy, uh, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. He doesn't say find a realtor in a nice neighborhood and location, 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 right? Uh, 
For would-be Jesus followers who have a permanent address, how can one reconcile that choice with Jesus' original vision that his followers would, like him, be homeless, itinerant peasants? If we skip ahead nine chapters in Matthew's Gospel, we can read Jesus' own clear answer to what homeowners should do. Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And this was a young man, right? And then when that rich young ruler heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And ever since then, people have been desperately trying to interpret the eye of the needle as anything other than the eye of the needle, right? (laughs) Now, there is a time when I wanted to be perfect. At least that's what I thought I wanted. These days I feel like being perfect, whatever that even means, right? Uh, That's a whole other sermon, uh, what is perfect. Uh, I feel like being perfect might be a goal that better fits with the first half of life. These days, I'm trying to be more compassionate with myself and others, more honest about my limitations, more open to being imperfect, by which I really just mean being human. There was another important twist to this story that, again, also was less obvious to me earlier in my life and much clearer to me now. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. And that twist is that Jesus' standard operating procedure itself requires that not everyone be a homeless, itinerant peasant. There are, of course, people throughout the 2,000-plus years of Christian history who have radically followed that call. There are ways in which we can see Jesus' original vision, his plan A as a noble one, and we can see people like Benedict of Nursia in the 4th century, the Waldensians and the Beguines in the Middle Ages, Francis of Assisi. We can look at Dorothy Day. So we can, we can name these various people throughout history who have radically done, basically taken Jesus at his word and literally done that. But when we should also be honest, I would invite you to consider that they have always been, for 2,000 plus years, the rare minority, right? That it's been the overwhelming number of Jesus followers have not been those radical, pure few. They've been the, the many, the homeowners, the complacent. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But if Jesus' young disciples are going to follow his instructions, they need householders to visit. Otherwise, there would be no homes for the disciples to declare worthy or unworthy, no houses on which they might leave their peace or shake off the dust from their feet, no hearths at which they might eat in exchange for all that sick curing, dead raising, leper cleansing, and demon casting out, demon exercising, I guess I should say. So for any of you who do continue to find value in some, if not all, of Jesus' ethics, but find yourself either unwilling or unable to enact what we might call Jesus' plan A, be perfect, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow him, I invite you to consider plan B. To get to plan B, come with me on a brief detour through the Hebrew Bible. You may recall that near the end of the reading um, from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you now. 
Modern debates about same-sex relationships have gotten many people confused about Sodom and Gomorrah, but if you go back and read the full context of Genesis 18, where that we find that story, you will see that the sin in this infamous clobber passage, so clobber passages are scripture passages that people take out and try to beat each other up with, that the sin is not homosexuality, it is inhospitality to strangers. The concern is not the presence of adult same-sex relationships in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the absence of social justice. Uh, We actually can see the the, the biblical tradition interpreting this for us. So in Ezekiel's time, his Bible, so to speak, was the Torah in the way that Jesus' Bible came to be the Law and the Prophets. So if we look at how did Ezekiel read the Sodom and Gomorrah story, not how does Fred Phelps read the Sodom and Gomorrah story, how did Ezekiel read the biblical story, we see in Ezekiel 16.49, explicitly it says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. In light of that passage from Ezekiel, we can form a plan B along these lines. Instead of be perfect, if you can't be perfect, at least be humble. If you can't sell everything, at least share with those who have less than you. If you have more money than time, give generously to support social justice movements and organizations. If you have more time than money, volunteer to help those same organizations or causes that need your help. If you're in a state of prosperous ease, be hospitable to those who are poor and needy. Importantly, I'm not the first person to flip the script on Jesus' instructions to his disciples. In addition to the small number of books eventually collected into this anthology, now known as the New Testament, you know, none of these writers, Paul, they weren't submitting to like the submissions committee that, oh, I hope the New Testament com- committee will publish me, right? They were writing much more locally and regionally than that. Uh, but we, uh, and early Christians wrote many other documents beyond those that were collected, and perhaps the most helpful of these first century documents from a householder perspective is called the Didache. It means the teaching. It's related to our English word didactic. Uh, this ancient book is dated to about the same time that Paul was writing his letters, so about the 50s of the first century. Some people date it later to the late first century or early second century. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, what's more important is this householders wrestling with, we're not following exactly what Jesus has said, so how do we understand that? It was thought lost only to be surprisingly rediscovered in a church library in Turkey in 1873. As late as the 4th century, there were prominent Christian writers, Eusebius, Athanasius, who even considered it to be on the fringe of the Christian canon. In the um, long run, it was not read and celebrated in enough places geographically to make the final cut. The Didache is in many ways a manual for adapting the ways of Jesus to the duties and concerns of family, of occupation, of home, the very thing that Jesus and his wandering apostles had left behind. Related to Jesus' instructions, the Didache attests that charismatic followers of Jesus were continuing to follow plan A, to circulate, claim to speak prophetically for God in exchange for temporary room and board. And we heard from the reading of chapter 11 of the Didache that the need is clear for householders to practice hospitality. It says, welcome the teacher when the teacher comes to instruct you. 
And whereas Jesus' instructions focus on whether a house or a town is worthy of receiving peace, the Didache's instructions are written from the opposite perspective, whether yet one more traveling apostle is a legitimate or illegitimate follower of Jesus' way. And how do we protect ourselves? What boundaries do we draw? In the tradition of all those throughout history who have been fooled once, twice, three times or more by hucksters, charlatan, con men, saying they're selling you a cure-all that turns out to be snake oil, the Didache is interested in a litmus test for distinguishing true prophets from false prophets. And whereas Jesus says, be perfect, the Didache is explicitly pragmatic. It says, quote, if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord... Uh, you will be perfect. But if you're not able, eh, do what you can. There is a similar pragmatism regarding prophets. By their fruit, you will know them. Not by their words, right? By their fruit. So what does prophetic fruit look like? Uh, There was a saying that, there's a bumper sticker that says, uh, God wants spiritual fruits, not uh, religious nuts, right? Uh, So... So what does prophetic fruit look like? It's, it's also noteworthy that Didache has a brief description of true prophets uh, who teach so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord and have the ways of the Lord about them, right? So they act like Jesus, right? Uh, but it's a much longer list. So they have that. But they have a much longer list of how to identify false prophets, a guide to spotting, spoiling uh, religious fruit, if you will. One of my favorites is that if the prophet stays three days, that prophet is false. We can see here the Didache uh, community seems to be familiar with Jesus' commission for his followers to travel itinerantly without food or money or possessions. Uh, But if someone stayed in one place too long, they risked exploiting the gifts of graciousness of hospitality. Also in line with Jesus' charge to his followers, the Didache cautions, when the apostle goes away, let the apostle take nothing but bread until the next night of lodging. And if the prophet asks for money, the prophet is a false one. The Didache continues, if he wants to stay with you and is an artisan, let that one work for their living. But if the prophet has no trade, use your judgment in making provisions. For a Christian should not live idle in your midst. In addition, I love that the text warns further that if uh, the prophet is dissatisfied with this sort of arrangement, pushing back against your boundaries, that one is a, quote, Christ peddler. Watch that you keep away from such people. Perhaps we need to bring that term Christ peddler back into circulation for those who claim to be a true prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but seem to actually really be interested in P-R-O-F-I-T. But for better or worse, we are able to influence most, not alleged Christ peddlers, but ourselves. And it's also significant to emphasize that what I've been describing this morning is, of course, not the one best true interpretation of these texts or of the Christian tradition for all times and places. Rather, it's simply how I've come to see things in this season of my life. And my mind may continue to change, after all continues to be the case throughout our lives that we see the world not merely as it is, but as we are. For now, whatever our age, whatever our situation in life, may we each increasingly use whatever resources are at our disposal. May we act within our spheres of influence for more humility, more generosity, more hospitality, more peace, more love.
one last story. I think the first real moment that I started to, and I I couldn't have even said it quite this clearly then, but that I started to call BS on the tradition of my, that I was being taught in my childhood congregation was when I was in middle school. And for some confluence of reason was standing outside on the sidewalk talking to my youth minister at the time. And a homeless person came up, or at least someone asking, begging for money, came by asking for money. And he said, I'm sorry, we don't give out cash. Uh, You know, if you come back later, I can tell you about the food bank or whatever, and then he walked away, and, and I asked my youth mentor, I said, now I understand why you did that, and I would say today, I, I can still, I can support the teach someone to fish, right, connect them with the social worker, I, I get that, but that's not what Jesus said, right, and I, so I asked my youth minister, I said, didn't, doesn't it say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone asks for you, then you give to them? If someone asks for your coat, you give them your cloak as well. You know, you go the second mile. You, you're even more just like sort of abundantly generous. And he was just like, well, that's just not what we do. To which I was saying, well, that means we're not doing what Jesus said to do, right? What's up with that? And the... So I came to wrestle over time with, you know, it's like in seminary, I came to realize that, you know, I was taking classes and things like feminist theology and womanist ethics and, you know, Latina feminist um, history and uh, Christian history, and th- which is great. But then I, I was thinking, but then what about that class that was just in theology? And I came to eventually see that that was actually incorrectly labeled, that a lot of what we call Christian theology could, so that, uh, could better be called, um, does not relate to what Jesus said, but relates to what came to be said in Jesus' name in this thing called Christianity that uh, as Emperor Constantine converted in the 4th century, and essentially the Jesus tradition sold its soul to try to gain the world, right? And that what we what is typically called just theology uh, could really be called like colonial white oppressor theology. You know, it's the, it's the I mean, so we just label things what they are, right? <laughs> so, uh, so as we wrestle with that and to, and just that contrast between what, uh, the final thing I'll say is I remember also really wrestling and, and as I grew up, got, got to be a teenager with, so, you know, it says that you're, and we heard this in the passage this morning, you're supposed to sell everything and store up treasures in heaven, right? But uh, some of you that have studied pedagogy may know the difference between what's called an implicit and an explicit curriculum. The explicit curriculum is what we say we're doing. The implicit curriculum is what we're clearly doing, which may or may not be in line with the explicit curriculum. So I came to see in my childhood congregation that the explicit curriculum was to sell everything and give your treasure to heaven. The implicit curriculum was one and nobody was doing that. And I, and I, so I, and I started wrestling with, if, if people really believe that we have 20, 40, 60, 80, maybe 120 years if you're lucky on this earth, and then infinity in mansions of gold in heaven, why aren't we all doing the Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, Francis of Assisi thing, right? The Jesus thing. And I came to see it's because they don't actually believe it or don't believe it enough to actually risk your lives on it. I used to be part of a, a vocational program for young adults um, many years ago, and we titled the program, You Bet Your Life. You know, what are you going to bet your life on? And these people were not betting their life on the Jesus message. And so that was, it was increasingly bothersome to me, and I came to realize that they were explicitly teaching Jesus and implicitly living the Didache. I couldn't have said that then, but I, I came to see that was the case. And I would come to see now that that's okay, but I think, you know, can we set aside the hypocrisy and be clear about what we are doing? 
Uh, but again, we, can, we can't control all that. We can't change 2,000 years uh, of history, but, we can, but, but here's, uh, as I say each week, what you can control. Increasingly be aware of the ways that you can continue your journey with love. What are the ways that you can do justice and make peace? What are the ways that you have experienced any taste or touch of hope, of love, or peace or joy in this time and place? That goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. Wherever you are and whatever season of life you're in, may you live boldly and with thanksgiving.